Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify black letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. Thank you once again, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us on another episode of the Black Letter Podcast. I've got Gordon Sumner with me today, a former army officer, ranger tabbed, airborne, uh, all of that happy stuff. And now the CEO of Vets Moving Forward and Quite an impressive background. I think PhDs, uh, music degrees, all kinds of, I don't, I don't even know where to go, but all kinds of interesting things. Uh, and I saw that, Gordon, and, and I don't know if you know, I, w- I went to Fort Benning School for Boys um, mm-hmm. a long time ago, Clinton administration, not as long ago as, as you were there. But I did um, basic there and then went to OCS and then I went armor, different direction. But I am somewhat familiar with, uh, I understood what all of your Army career, Purple Heart and uh, Bronze Star distinctions meant, which is quite exciting. So how did you end up with Vets Moving Forward? Tell us about, tell us about yourself and how that happened. Well, for Veterans Moving Forward, we go by Veterans Moving Forward. Veterans uh, Moving we, Forward, okay. We are, we are a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, this is our 12th anniversary. So September the 16th will be our uh, happy birthday day. Uh, for doing this and how I got involved with it was kind of one of these uh, opportunities that I wasn't expecting. I was just had just left the Obama administration where I served um, in the Department of Defense and uh, was looking for something to do. I'd started my own service disabled veteran owned small business, or as I call it, a service disabled veteran owned very, very, very small business. Uh, and also Native American small business, because I am part Native American, part of the Santee tribe. So I thought, well, this would be a good gig. I could use some of that to maybe get into some business, um, partnering with people. But I really didn't want to do the business side of the house. I really like service. I've done it all my life. Boy Scouts, uh, working in the church, um, things, things of that nature. Obviously, the military, which is service-oriented. So I got to thinking about it, and I shifted from being a business focus to a nonprofit and service disabled veterans groups um, nonprofit support. So right after I kind of got everything going and things were, were looking, starting to, to build up, you know how it is when you're starting a, your own business, you're kind of out there uh, yeah. trying to make those connections, get some money coming in because somebody's got to pay the bills. Especially so, a nonprofit, and you're not yeah. selling anything. You're yeah, just so, <laughs> yeah, so you're trying to get the nonprofits who don't right. have any money to pay you to help them to get money. So it's kind of a, that dichotomy of how do you support a nonprofit when you know they don't. And as it turned out, uh, the two co-founders, Karen Jeffries, which is a retired Navy commander, and a friend of hers, Bob Larson, who was a financier in New York City and Wall Street, they came up with this concept of putting together a nonprofit to provide service dogs to veterans without any caveat. And the reason for that is back in the 2008-9 timeframe, there were service disabled. I mean, there were uh, organizations to provide service disabled veterans service dogs, but a lot of them you had to have a caveat to it. So what does that mean? 
Well, if you wanted a service dog from this particular nonprofit, you had to have been of a particular service. They were only giving dogs to, say, Marines or Army. Wow. That's uh, kind of strange. Actually. Yeah, and there were, well, there were a lot of them. And then there were some that would only give a service dog if you were a 9-11 veteran or if you served in combat or if you served in Afghan or Iraq. Uh, there was no wide open, here's here's where we go. And a lot of people, by the way, I'll throw this out real quick before I forget it, but a lot of people think, well, why are you even having nonprofits like this? Because they're veterans, they should just go to the VA. Well, there is no program in the Department of Veterans Affairs that provides service dogs for, for veterans that are dealing with either mental or physical challenges. Though, If you need a seeing eye dog, yep, they can help you. But if you need any kind of mobility service dog or mental uh, challenge service dog, such as PTSD or something like that, there is sure. no program, no money to, to help you out. So that's why they got it started. So our program uh, is very simple. A veteran, the only thing they need to do to qualify is having served honorably. And we see that on their DD-214. It could be one tour of duty. It could be a whole career. doesn't matter. And, and for our listeners out there, DD-214 is an honorable discharge paper. So right, um, it's that, your, that's, it's, yes, it's your it's your discharge paper, and that piece of paper shows your whole life history in the military, to include the type of discharge, whether it was an honorable discharge, less than honorable, general, whatever the discharge you got, it's on that legal document. So that's how we verify. Instead of a veteran telling us, "Oh yes, I had an honorable discharge," well, that's the proof is the the DD two fourteen. So yeah. you have to have that. You also have to have a document from your primary care provider that says that they support your efforts to get a service dog. And if you're in any kind of mental counseling, you also have to provide a statement from your mental health provider that they, too, agree that the service dog would, would provide you that element of support and that you are still in counseling. And that's gotcha. it. That's how you do it. You could be retired, cleaning your gutters, fall off your ladder suddenly you're in a wheelchair and you need a service dog, we'll help. You could be a veteran who was wounded in Afghanistan and you need a service dog, we'll help. You could be a Vietnam veteran, which we're seeing a lot more applications of Vietnam veterans and um, well. First Desert Storm veterans that are applying for service dogs. And there, and I believe there's a reason for that, and I could talk about that later, but, but we're seeing that. So you could have been anyone. You could be a veteran who just had an honorable service and never never saw the light of day on a combat zone, but you did something that now uh, causes you to have a mobility issue so you can make your application. Right, because you uh, also said it could happen after your service. Like, you could be out right. of physically healthy, and then something happens, and then you right. need the service dog. So that's that's pretty unique. So let's. I want to jump back to you. You said you were in the Obama administration. You were Employer Supportive Guard and Reserve. Is that right? The E? SGR. I, I, only, I noticed that because um, when I started this law firm 22 years ago, a friend of mine was 20th Special Forces Group and I was 1158, uh, 29th Infantry Division Cavalry Unit, a recon unit. And we had an ESGR, like, uh, what is it? Because we were such good supporters. Yeah, well, 100% of our employees were, were members of the Guard and Reserve. So, uh, I just, I guess you were in charge of it probably at the time that we had that little plaque, but I remember applying for that and getting it. But I read that's a huge organization. So I yeah. guess my question really, though, to come back to it was I saw that and that big job in the administration, and now you're running this nonprofit. 
how do the two compare and, and what kind of what volume do you do where you are now? And what are the logistics challenges like, you know, compared to I don't being in the military, being a, a brigade commander or a battalion, I don't know if you're battalion commander, whatever you did, but what are the challenges and how have you been able to use some of your background to help you run this nonprofit? Well, the one thing about uh one the military, as you well know, is it's teamwork. It's all around teamwork. Uh, you have to have the 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 support of your subordinates. You have to have support of your non-commissioned officers, your other officers, their their leadership positions, and you have to have, make sure that everybody, as I call them, become true believers in what the commander's intent is aimed to achieve. So how you do that is you get everybody around and you explain to them what's going on and you ask for their input. Uh, it's not a dialogue; it's a, a monologue. It's a dialogue. And so you want to make sure that you have their input. Now, how did that translate when I was the national director for ESGR under both President Bush and Ob- and President Obama? Wow. So if you remember, uh, in the National Committee for Employer Support of the Guard and Reserve, while it had a robust staff, I had um, 72 uh, military uniform members, civilian, um, federal civilians. And then I also had about 150 defense contractors, and we were located in every state and territory, so even out in Guam. But the the real work that was done, and I'd say this, uh, and I'll get an email from from one of the military members, but the bulk of the work was done by volunteers. So we had uh, around 5,000 volunteers that made each of the state committees function in supporting all those employers and all the Guard and Reserve members from all seven branches of the Guard and Reserve in accomplishing their missions and making sure that they understood their rights and privileges under the Uniform um, Service Employment Rights Act. So, USERA. Gosh, I didn't even really realize that. So that organization was largely a volunteer organization by volume of of people. I always thought it was something the government did and you got a little, you know, yeah. Yeah, wow. and the nice and the nice thing is, is that we did have a budget. I when I first started, it was about twenty one million a year, which sounds like a lot of money. But when you're when you're supporting that volume of one point, uh, what was it at the time, one point three or one point four million Guard and Reserve members across the country, yeah. plus the staff to do that, plus all the events, the travel, etc., uh, you can eat that money up really quick. So what we did is we started getting the, the volunteers to document their time. I, ha- I would go and I basically lived out of a suitcase and I would go, especially on the weekends, and visit with the volunteers when they would have their Friday evenings and Saturday training sessions. Most of the time, I would ask the state chair at the very beginning not to tell them who I was because I wanted them to just show up, have a good time, do their training. And, and sure enough, every now and then, you'd have the comments of the group saying, well, you know, if we had more money, we could do more. And them son of a guns back in D.C., they don't know what the hell we're doing out here. They don't appreciate what we're doing. You know, the person, ever, ever, I wish I could talk to the person in charge. Undercover so, boss. Yeah. So after a while, uh, the state chair then would stand up and introduce me. And you could, you could imagine what happened in the room. It's like, oh, God, he's going to fire me or whatever. I told them that I actually appreciated that because the message that they were telling me was that I wasn't communicating 
what we were doing to them adequately enough because they were going on false rumors, bad news, uh, lack of communications, lack of news. So that's why I was there. And I felt it was important that they knew exactly what we were doing and what I needed them to do and why I needed them. I needed them to tell the story. So we implemented the, um, the volunteer uh, accountability system. I hooked them up to the presidential volunteer service awards program so that we could track their hours. And when they got a certain level, they actually got awarded by this presidential service program so that they got certificates signed by the president of the United States. They got medallions. We made a big deal out of it because at the end of the day, that's, that's a tremendous amount of hours that they put in that, that then translates to full-time employees. So it's, it's, it's a full-time equivalent is how much they were doing, which meant that many, that many people and that much dollars, the government, i.e. the taxpayers, didn't have to, to uh, buy because they were doing this voluntarily. And as I told them, everywhere I went, and I traveled to all 50 states and some of the territories, and I told them, I said, look, I can't give you a raise. Actually, I, could, I guess I could double your zeros. Um, I can't give you any time off. But what I can do is I can shake your hands and look at you in the face and say, thank you for what you're doing. And to me, that was the most important thing was to let them know from those of us on this side of the fence, how much we appreciated what they were doing. So I took that same philosophy into veterans moving forward, because, again, we're dependent upon volunteers to help us to be successful. We do have paid staff, but there's only four of us, myself, Lori Sittner, our COO. Katie Paulson, who is our program director and head trainer, and then uh, Linnea Morris, who is our other trainer. And that's it. That's just the four of us. Wow. So Do to you get guys every- train all of the dogs, 100% of the dogs, just those yes. two? Yes. How many dogs do you guys uh, send out per year? Well, we're doing right now about three or four dogs a year. We've got nine in the program at various stages from puppy up to um Katie is just returned mm-hmm. yesterday from Montana okay. where, we're, where we're starting to place a dog with a Marine veteran out there. So we have the four, but that means everything that we need to have functioning, just like a, a business. And that's, that's why I tell people, yes, we're a nonprofit, but that's a name. We run it like a business. Uh, so what happens is we, we rely on these volunteers to do things like the financial management, the donor management system. Right. Um, communications, all of our outreach, our social media, we have to, we have to rely on puppy raisers because we can't keep the dogs overnight. So a puppy raiser is like being a foster parent. So these individuals and families, they basically take the dog when we get them at eight weeks and they keep them for two years and they drop the kids off for school Monday through Friday for training. And then they pick them up at the end of the day and they keep them on the weekend. They do have homework assignments. So they do wow. help, with the, help with the training of the dog for that two years. Last year, we had 55 volunteers who actually logged some kind of hour in our program, some kind of support time. And uh, and I know they didn't do all of it because they say, oh, I, I forgot. I got busy when I got home, forgot to log my hours when we supported this event. But what they did log last year alone was over 15,500 volunteer hours. Oh, my gosh. So how much does it take to get a single dog with a single veteran from start to finish, like cost and effort? Because it it sounds like 15,000 hours, you have nine dogs. It must be a tremendous lift. Um, what is that? What does that look like? It runs, it runs around $50,000 a dog for that two years. That's wow. $50,000 that covers everything. It, it includes our facility, the training center, 
all the utilities that goes into that, the actual purchasing of the puppy, which runs around three to five thousand dollars, and that's a discount price that we get from selected breeders that we work with who call Katie up and say, "Hey, we got a litter coming. Uh, do you have space? Would you like a puppy? If so, let us know." Uh, and then Katie gets to go out and do the evaluation, and we kind of get the pick of the litter, which is which is really nice. Is and this then, a special kind of dog? No, uh, they're just they're they're gold. What we do is we use the Labrador Retrievers, mm-hmm. and that's just because over the twelve years we've we have tried a, a lot of dogs. We've the bulk of the dogs we had up to a few years ago was uh, Golden Retrievers. They did okay. as well too, but we've done everything from standard poodles, German Shepherds, uh, the other Retrievers. Um, but just in the last few years, again, with the relationship that we have with these breeders and the fact that these dogs, these uh, Labrador retrievers, with their smartness, their mental acuity, their ease of training, their strength, their stamina, the kind of veterans that we have that are coming in requesting a dog, they're just a much better um, gotcha. match for these gotcha. for these individuals. So that's why we're not doing chihuahuas. No, we don't do chihuahuas, <laughs> killer chihuahuas. So, but yeah, it runs, like I said, around 50,000. We are uh, right now at about $30,000 a month operation. Gotcha. So as you can imagine, what keeps me up at night is making sure that we've got $30,000 coming in a month to pay the bills, pay the salary, pay for the dogs. And we have unexpected expenses. I didn't know until uh, last year, one of our puppies had to have some serious dental work. About no thirty five, about thirty five hundred dollars of dental work. So Charlie wow. comes. Charlie comes back to the center with braces. Didn't know wow. dogs had braces, but yep, we had to put braces. I on didn't even know dogs can get braces. So that yep. leads me to a great segue. So actually, I think what we can do is maybe jump to the next section of our show, and the next section is, the next was gonna be your advice, but I'd rather go with sequentially of challenge you face because we're talking about the business. And I'd rather hear about, here's the challenge that I had, and here's how we overcame it. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks uh, for joining us again here with Gordon Sumner, the CEO of Veterans Moving Forward. Gordon will be back with us on the next episode here in our studio right away, but for you all in a few days or next week. Uh, And Gordon's going to tell us about some challenges he's faced and how I think what COVID did and the impact it had on his business and how he overcame that challenge. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you on the next episode of the Black Letter Podcast. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And check out our website at blackletterstudios.com.